Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. I want to read this one more time. Follow again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live according to them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. The theme of the book of Leviticus. The theme of this book It comes through in every word on every page. The theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. Holiness. If there is any one word that you can grasp, any one thought that you can hang on to as we study through, any one thing that should stick every time someone even mentions this book, it's holiness. 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 Leviticus 19 verse 2. God says to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God desires holiness for us. Why? Because He is holy. Eight times He proclaims the same sentence in His word. Be holy, because I am holy. Be holy, because I am holy. Now again, we've heard this call to holiness several times since we started the study in Leviticus about three months ago. But I'm not sure yet that we know what to do with holiness. That's one thing to talk about. It's one thing to hear about the fact that God is a holy God. It's another thing to walk out those doors and choose to live a holy life. What does that mean? How does that play out in my day to day? How am I to be holy? What exactly does that look like? The problem is, We've gotten so used to unholiness in our world, it's difficult to even begin to consider the things that are holy. We've gotten used to unholiness. It's just the way it is. We live in a sinful, fallen world, so that's the way it is. We get used to things. We settle into things so easily. It's human nature. We have at home, after the the year or so of, of building and getting permits, getting our house all done up on the hill over here, we have a little photo album that Cheryl put together. And it kind of traces the, the whole little situation, how we got our house built and all that. And you can watch it, go through it and, and track it. There's a page on it that's my, my favorite page. It's the standout page for me in the whole album. And it has a big title at the top of it that says, RV Having Fun Yet. <laughs> RV Having Fun Yet. And it's pictures of Sharon and Bill and their life in an RV for a year. A year. So they moved up here in May, a year ago, May, right? 2004. And we said, yeah, we'll, we'll get an RV. You guys can live in that, you know, through the summer. The house will be done, you know, probably by fall. So it's just a short, you know, four or five months. You just, it'll be hard, but hang in there. And four months turned to five, and then to six, and then to eight, and then and a whole year. What's amazing to me is that somehow they survived cooking on a little, a little stove the size of a laptop. I mean, this thing was tiny. 
They had an extra refrigerator outside until it got too cold to have one outside, just to try and have stuff kept cold. They had these twin beds in this RV that were so short that Bill's feet hung off the end. And he was cold for a long time until I pointed out to him the wool socks at Costco. And then he was a happy guy. And I don't know why, I don't know how, somehow they got through the entire year and we never saw the headline, RV bombing at a local park. Pastor's in-laws, missing, story at 11, you know. We never heard that. Why? Because, oddly enough, strangely enough, as difficult as it was, they adjusted. It's just the way it was. That's just, that was just life. You just had to do it. And what other choice was there? They just got used to it. And that's what we do, I believe, with a sinful world. We concede. We compromise. We give in. Because we've grown accustomed to a lack of holiness. You turn on the TV. Do the commercials even shock you much anymore? Some of you, they do. What's amazing is they tend to shock me more right after Bible study than they do two or three days later. We go to movies. Are you offended? When was the last time? Can I just see a show of hands? When was the last, how many people in the last year walked out on a movie because of something offensive? Praise the Lord. Bless you all. The rest of us, shame, 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 shame. A.W. <laughs> Tozer has a little book out, and I really would encourage you all to pick it up. It's about 100 pages long. It's, not, it's, a, it's a fantastic read. It's not a quick read, because you want to read a sentence and savor it, and then read another sentence and savor it again. The book is called The Knowledge of the Holy. The knowledge of the holy. I'm going to give you several Tozer quotes over the next few minutes. And as a matter of fact, if I say anything that sounds slightly intelligent, it's probably Tozer. But he says, in the knowledge of the holy, he says, We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. We are not disappointed when we do not find all truth in our teachers or faithfulness in our politicians or complete honesty in our merchants, or full trustworthiness in our friends. That we may continue to exist, we make laws as are necessary to protect us from our fellow men, and we let it go at that. Which brings us to this shocking truth. We will never know holiness in terms of human behavior. It can't be done. Now we can talk about it all we want in here, but I promise you, spend a week with me and you will realize there is nothing holy about this guy. Spend a week with any human being, no matter how spiritual. Spend some time with Mother Teresa. Well, you can't spend time with Mother Teresa. She's not with us anymore. But spend time with Billy Graham. He's, he's still... Yes. Anybody. Any human that's walked a face of the earth and you will not learn what it means to be holy. We can't know holiness in terms of human behavior. We will never discover it in and of ourselves, which is why God says, Be holy because I am holy. I am holy. I want to give you four solid foundations this morning for holiness. Four foundational truths from five verses here that we've just read in Leviticus 18. Five truths. Junior Barnes okay over there? Little baby all right? You just had to hold a baby, didn't you? <laughs> well, please, don't let me interrupt there, Renee. <laughs> okay. I want to give you four things to think about regarding holiness and what holiness truly means, what it's about in these five verses. Number one, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down. Number one, first thing to consider when you consider this whole idea of holiness, especially as it practically relates to us, I am the Lord. 
I am the Lord. Verse 2 he says it, I am the Lord your God. Verse 4 he says it, I am the Lord your God. Verse 5 he says again, I am the Lord. And as a matter of fact, those who, who studied with us on Wednesday night, you know, over and over and over through these chapters, right in this little section here, God says, I am the Lord. As a matter of fact, between Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, God will say, I am the Lord, 49 times. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And we just studied Leviticus chapter 18, and it was interesting. It is the chapter that you would go to if you want to prove someone to someone that God has problems with sexual immorality. There's all kinds of stuff. Talking about incest, things that you know you don't really want to have to deal with. It's one of those chapters. But throughout, as I said Wednesday night, I will say again today, that this chapter is not about sexual immorality. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord. I'll tell you what, teenagers, right now, if you want to avoid sexual immorality in your life, you focus on the Lord. Because if all you try to do is just say no to it, it's not enough. It's not strong enough. The pressure, the power, what is all around you in this world is too strong if you're just saying, ah, I'm just going to try and hold off. You know, I'll just wait. I, 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 I can say no. Many, many people... In fact, many of the adults among us said, Oh, I can say no, and didn't. Because it's not enough. I am the Lord. I've had teenagers ask me the question, Well, how far is too far? My favorite way of answering it is just, Hey, do whatever feels comfortable with Jesus sitting right there. (laughs) Now, can you imagine that? If in the flesh Jesus went on every date with you, how would that change your entire focus? And yet He does. He is there. And not as a harsh judge. Knowing Jesus' love, His concern, His passion for your lifestyle so far outweighs what you might be feeling in the heat of the moment. That if we could recognize Jesus there, if we recognize I am the Lord, teens, again, you would have something to stop you. Something to keep you pure before the Lord. You won't do it yourself, but the Lord can. The Lord can. His Lordship doesn't change whether we're talking about church or the bedroom. He is still married people. He is still the Lord. He is still the Lord. I am the Lord. Which brings us to this thought, something we shared Wednesday, that God is the foundation of all morality. That without God, remove God from morality, and morality is worthless. Bill Bennett wrote a couple of very, very popular books. A lot of Christians especially picked these books up, but they they went all over the country. The books were The Book of Virtues and The Moral Compass. Remember those books? Book of Virtues, big, big book. I was reading it this, this week, looking at it, trying to get a sense of where he was going with it. And in the introduction, he talked about how these stories were morality tales. Useful for teaching and explaining and expressing morality to our children. And I thought that's great. However, a morality tale isn't going to change anybody's life if the Lord is not the source and the foundation of that morality. And hear me clearly on this. If God does not exist, if God is not real, man, why are you here this morning? There are a lot more exciting things that you could be doing than listening to me. Why are you wasting your time? If God's not real... Why even try to be good? Honestly, if God doesn't exist, why give a rip about any other human being except what they can give you? Now that may sound a little, you know, a little harsh, a little hedonistic, but gang, that's where I would be if there wasn't the Lord. That's how I would live. If this is the only life I've got, man, get out of my way. I've got a lot of living to do. And I'm going to live it up to the hilt. 
the Lord. The Lord is the foundation of morality. Well, Rick, are you saying that morality is not a good thing? I'm saying morality is an awesome thing because it's about the Lord. Because it's Him. And He brings life and breathes meaning into every moral situation. Every value judgment we make is because of Him. I am the Lord. He is the foundation. Without Him, gang, trying to build morality into a human heart is like trying to build a house on jello. Have you ever thought about doing that? I mean, I'm sure you haven't. I have a weird mind to think of these things. But can you imagine Niccolo trying to build that on Jell-O brand gelatin? Watch it wiggle, you know? And yet people do it all the time. Psalm 18 verse 31 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock? A rock except our God. Man, you can stand on that truth. That foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, Tozer tells us the following. He says, Holy, listen to this, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is holiness. I like that. God is the standard. He is the basis of any and all morality. Remove the Father, you remove the foundation. And so God, through all of these pages, continues to say, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. Look at verse 6. He says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is, the nakedness of your mother. She's your mother. You're not to uncover her nakedness. And you go, okay, that's kind of gross anyway. But how do I deal with this? Why is this even in here? Look back. And so that was verse 7, wasn't it? He says, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. Why? I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. Even things like sexual immorality you deal with because I am the Lord. That's the reason why you seek purity. Because I am the Lord. Second thing to jot down, I know where you've been. I know where you've been in your life. Verse 3, he says, You shall not do... You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live. Gang, God is saying to Israel, I know what Egypt was like. I saw it. I wasn't hiding out here in the promised land while you guys were down in Egypt for 400 years. I know what Egypt is like. I know where you've been. He says, you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live. I know about the idolatry. I know about the paganism, the sin-soaked lifestyle. I know all of that. And by the way, Israel, I think God would say, I know how you imbibed in those things. I know of your involvement in those things. The paganism that Israel brought out of Egypt with them, God knew that they were indulging in these things during that time. He knew. And yet what's amazing is this whole idea, a couple of sub-points to jot down here. Number one is he reserves judgment. He reserves judgment. He doesn't bring Israel out of Egypt and immediately squash them and say, because of what you've been doing, because of the sins that you guys have been engaging in while you're in Egypt, I'm not even... No, he brings them out and begins to teach them. He reserves judgment. He is just the same when he meets a woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus, do you remember the story? He's walking with his apostles and they're, they're talking and they're all kind of hungry and they come to a well and Jesus sits down and he says, you guys go ahead and get something to eat. I'm going to hang out here for a little while. And a woman comes up, it's high noon, and she comes up to, to fill up her water buckets and Jesus begins to talk to her and it's amazing what he says to her. As they talk, he says, hey, why don't you go get your husband and, and, and have him come here? And she says, oh, I, I don't have a husband. And he goes, 
you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you're living with right now is not even your husband. And that's all he says. She then says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Uh huh. (laughs) But he doesn't say, And the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Sarah. He reserves judgment. He shows first relationship. You've been with five men, and now the man you're with is not your husband. What are you saying, Lord? I know about your past. I know where you've been. I know how hard it's been for you. I know what you've gone through. I know what you've done. I know all about your past. Judgment reserved. This woman came to the Lord in that conversation. Another amazing moment is John chapter 8, where we don't just see judgment reserved, we see judgment removed. Removed. In an amazing moment, a woman who is caught in the act of adultery is thrown before Jesus. The Pharisees that have grabbed her, she is apparently scantily clad. They caught her in the act. And we've said this before, but how they caught her in the act, I have no idea, because I mean, one of those Pharisees had to be, you know, like, peeping, to even know this was going on. They grabbed her, throw her in front of Jesus, and said, what should we do with her? <laughs> Mr. Grace, man, now what are you going to do? Remember the famous phrase? He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, and I would add wisest to the most foolish, they walk away. And what does Jesus do with her? Hey, where'd everybody go? Is there anyone here to condemn you? And she says, no, no one's here to condemn me, Lord. And he says, neither then do I condemn you. But listen, but listen. Go your way and sin no more. Judgment reserved with the woman of the well. Judgment removed from the adulterous woman. I know where you've been. I know what's happened there. I know what life has been like for you. Flipping your Bibles to 1 Peter, all the way over far into the Bible, toward the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter, chapter 1. And Jesus in all this, God in all of this, as He brings the people out and says, I know where you've been, I understand, I know the kind of sin, I know the world that you live in, but now, but now, He he says to Israel, don't do what you did in Egypt. Don't do what the Egyptians do. Go your way and sin no more. Why, Lord? Because i got something so good for you. So much better. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, listen gang, you've got a living hope. You have an inheritance, a salvation ready to be revealed. What do all these things have in common? The future. Forward thinking. Looking ahead. Let's get down to verse, 12, verse 10. He says, as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
the prophets and the angels, they were all looking ahead, waiting for the revelation of these good things to come. Our inheritance, our living hope, our salvation. Careful inquiries. I love that. That means the prophets of the Old Testament were going, when is going to happen? The salvation is promised. This is something that's come. And they were so future focused. Their eyes were on what was ahead, not on Egypt behind them. You may recall when we studied Exodus, we used a phrase several times over and over. It's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get the Egypt out of the people. And so God says, you're leaving there. I know where you've been. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't live the way you lived there. Verse 13 of 1 Peter tells us, Therefore, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the most practical things you can do toward living a holy life is to fix your hope on what Jesus is going to do. You keep your eyes open to Him. You look for His coming. You anticipate His return. You think about and consider the fact that this is not it. That this unholy world in which we live is not it. It is an RV for a year. And God is saying, I'm going to get you out. I am going to get you out. You live toward that. I know. I know where you've been. Number three, back to Leviticus 18. Number three, the Lord says, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. Verse 3, he says, Nor nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. I know where you've been. I know what it was like in Egypt. I pulled you out of there. But now, now you're going into Canaan's land. And hey, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the land of the promise. It's the land of your forefather Abraham. This is where I'm bringing you. And I've got a great inheritance. But, but, listen, but, don't live like the people live who live there. I know what's coming in your life. I know where you're headed, and you are headed for a land that is defiled. If you look down in verse 24 of chapter 18, God says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land, the land itself has become defiled. The land, Canaan's land, the promised land, is a land filled with spiritual pollution. God says, I know what's coming for your life. Now listen, people will come to Christ and become Christians. They'll give their lives to the Lord. And and oftentimes a flurry of excitement and enthusiasm and wonder and awe that God would forgive them. And then as they begin to take steps forward in that Christian life, they go into, they begin to enter this promised land, this, this new life. We begin to experience at some level the kingdom. Oh, not like the kingdom that's to come. But we begin a, a level of kingdom living. And suddenly we get sideswiped or blindsided or completely wiped out because we did not expect that after we came to Christ, life would get harder. Sin would be more of a challenge. That as we live our lives, I've been a Christian a long time in my life. Let me tell you, sin now 
is more obvious to me and sometimes more difficult to fight than it was when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm more aware of it. I see it every day. I find that if I am not in the Word, I don't have a chance. My worst weeks are weeks when, I, when I'm taking time off and, and not studying. And not in God's Word. God says, I know what's coming for your life. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, through one man sin entered the world. And death through sin. So death spread to all men. Because all men sinned. And the world, the world became polluted. We live in a polluted place. A defiled land. And sure, you can be in a promised land of sorts as you live for Jesus as a Christian, but it's still a defiled land. God says, I know where you're going. Don't do what the Canaanites do. Don't live the way the Canaanites live. Which is why one day the Lord promises the earth will be destroyed. Because it's defiled. Because it's polluted. Second Peter 3.10, he says, The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Think about this. Even heaven will be destroyed. Why? Because Satan has access. I I thought Satan was driven out of heaven. Have you read the book of Job? Starts out, Satan is in heaven before the Lord talking to him about Job. Satan still has a level, a measure of access in the heavens. And so there is that level of sin, that pollution. It's not only on the earth, but even in the heavens above. And God says the day is coming when all of it will be destroyed. And I will create a new heaven and a new earth, unpolluted, undefiled, and perfect. But right now, Israel... Right now you're headed for Canaan's land. Milk and honey, good things, but it is also a land polluted. God is completely aware of what we're about to face. Let me put a finer point on it. God is completely aware of what you're going to face tomorrow. He knows what you're going to face Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week. We have no idea. We have no idea what kind of tragedy might pop up in our lives. We have no idea what kind of spousal fight could occur. We have no idea what's going to happen at work. No idea how Satan is going to try to tempt us to fall. But God does. I know where you're going. I know where you're going. And in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, knowing where you're going, with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The Spirit, through Paul there, doesn't say, I know you're going to blow it, so here's your grace. Here's your grace. You know? And it says, whatever. I mean, I, I, I hate for you to sin, but if you do, it's okay. I died on the cross, no biggie. It is a biggie. Every time. Every time. He provides a way of escape. Of course, He will apply the salve of grace to the wounds of sin. The gang have become, become so accustomed to sin, so used to unholiness that we assume it must happen. We assume in our lives, 
It's just the way it's going to be. No. The Lord says no. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 8, If we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Even so, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. God says, don't walk like an Egyptian in the past. And don't live like the Canaanites of the future. Verse 4 of chapter 18, He says, No, perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. Why, Lord? Because I am the Lord your God. And number four in our notes, he says all these things, and he says, because I know how to live. I am the Lord. I know where you've been. I know where you're going. And I know how to live. You know what the first thing many people think of when you say the word holy or holiness? They think, hmm, that's difficult. That's hard. That's going to make my face draw down and get sour. You, you, you've seen the, the, the Christian who comes up and says, God bless you. <laughs> you know, I am so thankful to be in the Lord today. Thankful that life is what it is. It's hard. It's hard, but we're hanging in there. We're going to be holy. And the world goes, I don't really want any of that. But you guys have also met the Christian who is off the wall, excited about God, whose face is lit up, and when you talk to them, you just walk away going, Jesus is so cool. And that's the life that God has called us to. He says, I know how to live. Verse 5, I tell you, keep my statutes, my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. Not be bored, not be sorrowful, not be weighted down, by which a man may live. You want life? Be holy. The best thing you can do to get the most out of life is holiness. That's where life is found. That's where it's lived. Holiness. You know, our very word holiness comes from the Anglo-Saxon word. Thank you, A.W. Tozer. The Anglo-Saxon word halid or hal, which literally means well or whole. Holiness is wholeness. It's wellness. It's life. Which is why Moses says at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days. Do you hear that contrast? Life versus death. Blessing versus cursing. Wholeness Versus emptiness. And Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am life. I'm life. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. Abundant life. That's what Jesus promises. Now, someone might say, okay, great, but the only thing abundant in my life right now is confusion. The only thing abundant in my life is pain. The only thing abundant in my life is tragedy. Listen, and listen closely here. If you've checked out at all, check back in. Because you need to hear this. If you are in that place where life is hard and tragic and the only abundance you feel is sorrow, listen up. And if you know anybody who is in that place, listen up. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, he said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. 
Right now, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't understand everything that's going on. I will. I will. But right now, life is like looking in a mirror and not seeing it all. I've got this patch in the back of my head that's getting thinner and thinner, and I can't see it. When I, you know, to do the comb over thing and cover I can't see it. I only see in parts, not the whole. Thankfully, thankfully, what we will see later is not empty patches on the backs of our heads, but good things. Good life. But this brings us back to the potent phrase, I am the Lord your God. I know where you've been. I know what's coming. I know how to live. Why, Lord? Because I'm the Lord. Because I am the Lord. Because holiness is not just one of my traits. Holiness is me. You want to meet holiness? His name is Jesus. I am holy. And gang, when we question Him, when we rail at Him, when we argue before Him, we forget the singular and most distinctive truth of holiness. That holiness is derived and understood and known only in relationship to God. But again, we in our world have become acclimated to unholiness. Used to sin. To where it's just kind of the way things are. And in this sin-sick world, it is so hard and we often wrongly assume that God functions in the same way that we do, which is why we get angry with Him. We think that God should do something because we would do something. Just this last week, I got an email um, from a, a precious friend. And he described to me a situation that several years ago, his daughter was killed by a drunk driver. I didn't even know this. And that at this point, his former wife is really continues to struggle and struggle and struggle with God. How could God do this? How could He take from my life my best friend? How could He remove her from me? How is this possible? What kind of God would do this kind of thing? I want to give you a couple of stories here that are silly and but, but stay with me. Because we got to understand this. Corey was 20 months old when he fell down the stairs. We were living in a townhouse in Fairfax, Virginia. I was up at the top of the stairs. I turned to say something to Cheryl. I had my hand right behind him there. I turned to say something to Cheryl. I had told him several times to be careful. These stairs were, I mean, straight up and down. How many stairs were there? Like 42, I think. It was a long, long way down there. And I turned to say something and I, I just, I felt his shoulder go out from under my hand and turned around in time to watch my little 20-month-old son go head over heels, toppling. I'm talking a long way. He wasn't just flopping this way. His head and then his feet came up and his head went, I mean, all the way down, probably 15, 16 stairs, straight down. With me chasing him all the way down, I could not get my hands on him. I couldn't stop it. All the way down to the bottom, boom, he hit the bottom. His eyes opened wide. I thought, he's dead. That's it. And he let out this shriek and the tears started to flow and he looked at me like, how could you let this happen? What kind of father are you? I trusted you up there. You had your hand, I was just stepping out and you were supposed to stop me. How could you do this, Dad? And I'm looking back going, I didn't make this happen. I knew it would, so I said... Don't go there. I know, I know what it's like. So, so I say, be careful. Don't do this. And yet he fell. And there was that sense of, what have I done? 
And we look at God that way. Tragedy strikes, something hits, and we look at God and go, How can you let this happen to me? Your hand was right on my shoulder. And the next thing I know, I'm at the bottom of the steps in pain. How could you do this, God? Another story. Corey and Hannah were quietly sitting watching TV in our den, eating their little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And all of a sudden we hear a shriek from Corey. We go running in there to see them running around the couch. Corey, having eaten half of his peanut butter and jelly sandwich, Hannah had finished both halves of hers. He was four, she was two. She had his other half in his hand. And she was shoving it into her mouth as fast as she could as she ran around the couch. And Corey's chasing after her. Get my peanut butter and jelly sandwich! Peanut butter and jelly flying everywhere. And Corey looks at me and it was that look again. Dad, how can you let this happen? And I think also, why did she have to come into the family at all? You know, when it comes to the scares, if I could say to Corey as a 20-month-old, 20-year-old, we'll have that conversation, but as a 20-month-old, if I could say this to my son, I would have. Corey, there are physical laws at play. There are laws at play here. And if you step out over empty stairs like that, you will fall. That's just gravity. That's the truth. In the same way there are spiritual laws at play and and God speaks to us, He tells us, He gives us His word but we're not listening or we're too immature to hear it or we don't get it and He says they're spiritual laws. And if you don't obey those laws, you're going to fall. And it's going to hurt. God, why did you do this? I didn't. I told you. I told you. Ahead of time. Well, what about the situation with Hannah? Son, there are spiritual laws here at play as well and she disobeyed them. She disobeyed them. She took the sandwich. I didn't want her to, but she didn't. God never wants a drunk driver to kill someone. Ever. God allows us something in this world called free will. Every one of us has it. Free will is a great gift, but free will in a defiled land is dangerous. And yet there is no other way for God to absolutely be certain and even more so for us to be certain than we, that we love Him if He didn't give us that choice. And so the car is hit. And so we rail out. Why? Why, Lord, did you allow this to happen? I don't understand. I don't get it. And Paul says, you're right, because we don't see very well right now. We just see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Right now we only know in part. Then we will know fully. So I said to my kids as they were little, I said, trust me guys, I'm your dad. I know the way. I know where we're going. I know where we've been. I'm your dad. I'm your father. And God says the same to us, trust me. I know something about where you've been, something about where you're going, and I know something about life. And until you get to where I am, you're going to have to learn to trust me. To trust me. 1 John 5.20 John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding Understanding? Understanding about life and why things happen and what goes on? No. We know that He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. 
And we are in Him who is true in His Son Jesus Christ, who is true God and eternal life. Gang, the understanding is of Him who is true. It's not of your past. If you want to spend time trying to figure out your past and why things happen the way they happen and why you ended up with the mess that you've got right now because of the past, you will waste your time. It's a waste of time. You're not going to understand your past. You're not going to understand what's coming tomorrow that you didn't see coming. You're not going to understand it. There are going to be so many things, past, present, and future in our lives that we're not going to get. But God says, I know where you've been. I know where you're going. I am life. Look to me. Trust me. Father, we do trust you. We believe in you. But we cry out, help our unbelief. Father, we are so debilitated because our understanding is marred in this defiled world. And because we are so used to unholiness that when holiness comes along, we're not sure exactly how to take it. And so this morning, Father, it's a very simple truth that if we will look to you and trust you, all the misunderstanding will fall away. If, If we will follow you and listen to you, then you can begin to develop holiness in us. You can begin to develop, to build on that solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that's what we long for. And we long, Father, for understanding not of the things that happen in this world because there are so many random things, but we do long to know you, to know your love, and to have a deeper and greater trust in you. As we pray this morning, if you have never accepted Jesus into your heart, And now is the time to do it. Knowing that you will not understand everything in this world, but that He does. Would you just pray after me? Father, I'm a sinner in a sinful world, and I need forgiveness. And I confess to you, even my railing against you for things I never understood. And I pray, dear Lord, that you will help me to see Jesus to see the cross to understand that sacrifice as I lay myself before you I believe in you I believe Jesus you are the foundation you are the rock you are the son of God and I confess you this morning and ask you to come into my heart in Jesus name Amen